Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. According to Greek myth, Pandora was the first mortal woman. Endowed by the gods with traits like cleverness, curiosity, charm, and beauty, her name in fact means a gift to all, or all gifted. Zeus, the king of the gods, had Pandora created in order to get revenge. The target of his wrath was Prometheus, a god and trickster who had defied him. Prometheus created men in the image of the gods which Zeus was not cool with, as that was a Zeus job. Prometheus then gave people the gift of fire, which he'd stolen from the gods. Pandora and Prometheus's brother Epimetheus were married. Before leaving Pandora on Earth, Zeus gave her a jar, saying it was a special gift that she must never open. The unknown contents of the jar endlessly prodded her curiosity, and she eventually opened it, which ended paradise for all humankind. From the jar poured all the troubles of the world. Madness, greed, violence, sorrow, disease, vice, old age, and death. Humans would feel suffering now. Yet the one bright beacon was the item Prometheus had secreted into the jar. At the bottom remained hope, which gave those on earth the will to survive. Zeus also chained Prometheus to a rock and had an eagle eat his liver every day, which would regenerate each night to be eaten again the next day by the same giant screeching eagle. Prometheus was eventually freed. Over time and through mistranslation, Pandora's jar became a box, and the myth as a metaphor has endured for centuries. It has been used to emphasize the possibly world-ending consequences of nuclear war, AI technology takeover, and COVID-19. The box is commonly used when detailing anything related to former President And let's not forget the latest Mission Impossible sequel. It, like most of the series, revolves around the acquisition of a Pandora's box-like superweapon, which Ethan Hunt must run after at top speed. Jennifer Aniston even got in the game during an interview saying, Marriage brings up all the things I push to the back burner. The fears, the mistrust, the doubts, the insecurities. It's like opening Pandora's box. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> the Pandora's box I'm going to talk about today was an actual box a trunk constructed from composite fiberboard. Also referred to as a footlocker, it was approximately 32 inches long, 18 inches wide, and 14 high, with two metal clasps on its front. Its lid was secured with a combination lock. During the summer of 1946, the box sat on the floor of a basement in southeast Portland. Above the basement was the home of the Bowdens, parents Fern and Wes, and their children, Shirley and Doris. Wes had been away for three years during World War II. Stationed on Adak Island in the Aleutian chain, which curves off Alaska's southern end. He was there not as a soldier, but a civilian construction worker. While he was away, Wes and Fern kept in touch by sending letters. In one of his last, Wes said his contract was expiring and he'd be home soon. Fern and the girls were pleased with the news of Wes's return, but there was something nagging at Fern. 
The tone of his last few letters felt tinged with something. He seemed upset, depressed, angry, maybe mistrustful. She had no idea why he would feel this way. Fern Mavis Chandler was born on November 12, 1899, in Walla Walla, Washington, but she would become an Oregonian before she was a year old. She was nine and living in Baker, Oregon, when the family welcomed brother Franklin. Eight years later, sister Helen Claudia was born. The first tragedy of Fern's life came when she was only 20 years old, and four-year-old Helen Claudia passed away from pseudomembranous pharyngitis, which means she had an infection, possibly the flu, which then graduated to pharyngitis, wherein a thick, gray, mucus-like coating hinders breathing as it restricts the voice box, throat, tonsils, and nose. I'd like to say a quick thank you to everyone on Instagram because I was presented with this unreadable death certificate. Oh, yeah, I saw that. And uh, posted it. And so many people, I want to say, got it right. But yes, you actually read it, and it was amazing. So Josh was able to put it in his story. So thanks, guys. At 26, Fern married James Wesley Bowden in Baker, Oregon, near the Snake River and Idaho border. At the time, she worked as a stenographer, and her 29-year-old husband was a merchant. James Wesley was born in Mahler, Oregon in 1897. His mother had Wes first at just 16 years old. Over the next 11 years, she would birth six more children. Before marrying Fern, Wes enlisted in the Army, where he eventually joined the 268th Aero Service Squadron as a private. His squadron performed aircraft reconnaissance missions. Home safe from war, the Bowdens started building a family of their own. In October 1928, they welcomed baby Shirley. In 1934, Doris was born. As the girls were growing, the family moved often. The early 1940s found the Bowdens in Shasta, California. In 1943, Fern was working as a clerk for the Northern Pacific Railway Company in Tacoma, Washington. The Bowden women would settle into the Portland area while Wes was in Alaska. Fern was, for all intents and purposes, a single mother to two teenage girls. There was a struggle at first for money and even consistent housing but eventually Fern answered the call to occupy one of the many jobs vacated by men going to war. She was hired as the chief clerk at the East Portland Freight Terminal. Constructed in 1924, the building is now the East Bank Commerce Center in Portland's Central East Side Industrial District. It's pretty close to City Liquidators, one of the city's greatest home goods establishments. Truly. We highly recommend it. If you want a bunch of big spoons... Or like 200 salt and pepper shakers. Or a giraffe-shaped lamp. Yeah, a weird desk from an office that disappeared 40 years ago. (laughs) City liquidators. Cool couches, too. Some of the coolest couches I've ever seen. And a weird player piano, I think, that you can't touch or they'll yell at you. And free donuts on the weekends. Do you know that from experience? No, but there's a sign on it, and I felt this the the tone of the sign said, uh, was yelling at you. Do already. not do this. Yeah. Yes, it was like somebody I mean, caused that sign. I'm not. Yes. A, I'm not a child, but it like expressly for forbade <laughs> children from even looking upon it. <laughs> this clerk work provided Fern and the girls stability, steady housing, and even a little leftover to stash away for savings. Fern appreciated her coworkers and was grateful to be employed but I don't think her single income would suffice today for their home, now valued at $517,000. The letters the couple had been sending each other seemed to have sufficed in keeping the love alive, 
at least while Wes was away. That's kind of sweet. I can't imagine that these days. Mm. Just, oh, just over letters. letters. Unless they're, you know, very thorough, I guess. <laughs> Lots of compliments. Once Wes returned home, the unease Fern felt in that last letter was confirmed, and her hopes of him returning to his old self were lost. Wes's face was different. His eyes, which refused to meet hers, were darker. She would try to converse with him, but even mundane conversations about work would turn into full-on interrogations by Wes. He required minute details about everyone she interacted with on a daily basis. That was when she figured out what had Wes so upset. It was a man named Frank Hockenyos. Her work husband had become the target of her husband's newfound jealousy. When Wes asked about the relationship with Frank, Fern said, Wes, don't be a fool. I've told you a dozen times. There's nothing at all between Frank and me. We're friends, yes, but there's never been anything more between us. Wes decided to hear the opposite. He heard that Frank, the single man who was Wes's age, had become quite friendly with his wife. After hitting it off at work, Frank and Fern would not only have lunch at work together, but sometimes on Saturdays. The wartime rationing of gas led to a work carpool, which Fern and Frank shared daily. They had also been to each other's homes. Fern went to the home where Frank and his sister lived, and he had come to the Bowden home, but only if at least one of the daughters was present, as to avoid any judgments or suspicions. That does sound a little suspect for the times, I suppose. It does a little. Yeah, for back then. Yeah. yeah. What will the neighbors think? Mm-hmm. But I don't know. How old are they? Like early 40s? Yeah, I think Fern was... Single, f- living with his sister? Yeah, she was in her late 40s. Oh. You know? Yeah. Maybe he, he was... really wasn't interested in her. What do they call know? that with the kids these days? The Riz? That's what they say. Hmm. No. What? what? Yeah. What? What's to talk about homosexuals? The Riz? Yeah, something like that. Mm. What is that? I'm going to look it up. Well, I'm not a youngster, so I'm not saying that. Yeah, it's, it's like, the, I don't mean for anyone to say it. I just <laughs> thought I'd share it. Also, I can relate to somebody accusing you of your work husband mm. being more than just a friend. Mm-hmm. The questioning didn't end with Fern. Learning from Shirley and Doris that they'd interacted with Frank, Wes started asking them about the man whom he saw as clearly trying to take over his life. The girls sounded like their mother. Frank was nice, he'd been over a few times, and nothing outside of appropriate and friendly behavior took place between the adults. For most, this would have confirmed their spouse's honesty and allowed them a moment of clarity or to perhaps even seek professional help. For Wes, it was simply proof that the three women in his life were now conspiring against him. As things started to go sour, Fern sought advice from Frank and his sister. They felt horrible about the situation she was in, but suggested she hold out hope. If she could stick it out, maybe the situation would return to the decent way it was before. As Fern clung to hope, Wes dealt her an ultimatum. She either quit her job and never interact with Frank again, or he would leave. She begged him to think rationally and to reconsider what he was saying. She also stood up for herself, saying she would not stop seeing her friend as that would imply she had been inappropriate, an admission she would not make because it wasn't true. With that, Wes packed up and moved to the coastal city of Newport, where he worked on the fishing boat he and his brothers owned. This wasn't the heartbreaking move Wes may have expected it to be. Instead, Fern was optimistic, hopeful that time out on the water with his brothers 
and working with his hands would maybe clear his head and make him realize how far astray he had gone. Wes would come back to Portland now and again to see his children. With each visit, all Fern could notice was how he remained blunt, irritable, and suspicious of her. Seven months after moving out, Wes was back to living at home with the family, but not because he was over his conjured injustice. In fact, the time away seemed to have only heightened the stress within the home. The reunion was due more in part to the letters Wes claimed to have received, which confirmed his fears about Fern's adultery. He even berated her with the contents of one of the letters. Quote, To be forewarned should be forearmed. Saturday afternoon tea parties and luncheons can obviously become Saturday night dinners and breakfasts. Ooh, them fighting words. Yeah, I'm going to take a stab that Wes uh, penned those letters. Himself? Yeah. Yeah. Wes's accusations were becoming harmful actions. He started to stare at Fern. Just stare. Sometimes for extended periods. Sounds like an episode of Snapped. Mm. There were multiple occasions she awoke in the middle of the night, only to find him rummaging through her purse. Discovering a notebook Wes had left out, Fern was horrified to read, quote, Fern stood on the porch talking to Hockenyos for three minutes, 45 seconds. That was Frank, Hockenyos. Turning the pages, she realized her husband had not only been following and watching her, but he was documenting her every move. Refusing to comply with his abuses, Fern officially filed for divorce on June 11, 1946, stating cruelty is the complaint. By then, she was so fearful of Wes that it overrode her concern that the court could divide the children or allow their father full custody of Shirley and Doris. What a creep. Have you have you seen a picture of him? No. Leash? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Well, he's got those killer's eyes, you know? Are they icy he, blue? Icy blue. Looks they appear like to someone be. that would be watching and documenting someone. He does, yeah. And he kind of he kind of looks to me like, um, hmm, maybe like a, a, a guy that would work on a ranch in the 50s, sort oh, of. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or 40s, or 30s. Or today. Just <laughs> that kind. Yeah. Very uh, weathered. By life. Mm-hmm. And by wife. No my. Wes certainly knew the children would be Fern's Achilles heel, which was probably why, when presented with the news of the divorce, he seethed, You can't get away with it. I'll file a countersuit. I'll accuse you of running around with other men. I'll drag your name through the mud. And what's more, I'll get the children. Fern knew it was worth the gamble to proceed with the divorce rather than to stay. Thankfully, Wes took the divorce seriously and stopped stalking her. Instead, he was usually found hiding away in the basement, a relief for the Bowden girls. Things were finally quieter, but Fern knew it wasn't due to peace, but a forthcoming storm. Of most concern were the frequent packages she watched Wes carry downstairs. He never attempted to hide the mysterious bundles. If she ever caught him bringing things in the home, he would smile at her in a way that made her feel It was nearly a triumphant look. She was so certain he was up to no good, she told friends that whatever he was concocting would somehow keep her from getting the children in the divorce. By mid-July, even the girls were feeling uneasy about their father's behavior. On July 25th, Fern was the one in the basement. She was doing laundry. Like a scene out of a scary movie, a funny feeling told her to turn around, and when she did, she was startled by Wes looming on the stairs. He was back to his staring habit. He continued to stare down at her until she was done with the laundry. As she finished up, he went to a work table and fumbled around. Without exchanging words with her soon-to-be ex-husband, 
she left the basement. She took the wet clothes out back to be hung on the line, but she stopped and turned from the task. Making sure he couldn't spot her, Fern snuck up to one of the basement windows and watched as Wes, now wearing gloves, started to open the earlier described trunk while holding one of the paper bags she had seen him carrying earlier. Unsure what was going on or whom to talk to, the following morning Fern told her daughters what she had seen. They were all victims of this man, and they needed to stick together. In a later conversation, Doris shared that when she had gone down the stairs to get Wes for dinner, he was doing the same thing, gloves and all. How old were the girls? Uh, 17 and 13. Okay. On the morning of Saturday, July 27th, Fern was headed to work, and Wes was going to Newport for a few days. Before he left, Wes pulled his daughters aside and, while holding their shoulders, intensely warned them, Don't either of you go near that locker of mine in the cellar. Remember that. Keep your hands off that box. This, of course, made them all even more curious about the contents. After a short debate of should we, shouldn't we, the Bowden ladies went on with their plans for the day. Shirley went to an uncle's house, and Doris went roller skating. Fern did some housework in an attempt to push away the thoughts of Wes and his secrets, but it did no good. By this stage in a relationship, all of Fern's friends were well aware of Wes's toxic behavior and concerning hobbies. When it got to be 8 p.m. and she realized she still had the house to herself, she called her friend Frank. She told him about the ominous warning Wes made to the girls and how she knew whatever was in the locker was going to dramatically affect her life. Frank wasn't so sure about her idea. They knew Wes was happy to spy on Fern, which in turn would mean stalking Frank. Even if Wes was actually out of town, who knew what people were watching their home on Wes's behalf and reporting back to him? Fern was frustrated Frank wasn't willing to help, but it didn't deter her from her goal. Fern made her way down the basement steps. It was still and cool down there. The only sounds were Fern's breaths and her feet padding across the floor. She moved to Wes's workbench and grabbed a screwdriver. Crouching, she slid the tool between the hasp and the lock and began to pry. After a few attempts, the lock popped off. She hesitated. She dreaded the discovery. Fear held her hand back for a moment. Then she lifted the trunk's lid. It was 8.40 p.m. Fern wouldn't live to see the contents of the locker. When the lid was raised, a thunderous explosion rattled the neighborhood. Unbeknownst to Mrs. Fern Bowden, a detonator had been wired inside the footlocker's lid. The secret Wes had been hiding was a bomb. As noted aphorist Mason Cooley wrote, I love you is the inscription on Pandora's box. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up at your door in as little as two days. Then, when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new-to-you styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours and spending too much money on pieces I might not like, 
Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothing for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armour a try and get up to 50% off of their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armour today. It was the Bowdoin's terrified neighbors who called police to report the blast and concussion that shook their street. Detective Captain Eugene Ferguson and Detective Sergeant Myron Warren were the first to arrive. Plumes of smoke poured from the windows. The damage was devastating, and Ferguson documented everything he saw. The floor above the basement had been raised an inch. Every window was blown out. All the furniture was overturned. Drawers were ripped out of cabinetry. Broken china covered the floors and shelves. Investigators were at a loss as to where they would even begin. Amazingly, though the lid was blown off at the blast, the rest of the trunk remained mostly intact. Along with its use for bomb storage, the footlocker had been used as intended, as there was old clothing and packages of pipe tobacco still tucked inside. As for Fern, the positive in this case is that she didn't feel anything and was gone before she even knew what was happening. The young mother, who in some articles was described as comely, was quite literally blown apart. Detective Bard Purcell reported body parts strewn throughout the blast area. Pieces of electrical wires were blasted into the basement walls and ceiling. Reports read, The explosion blew Mrs. Bowden's body to bits, shattered the furnace, dislodged radiators and wrecked household effects. Crime laboratory experts found bits of human flesh throughout the basement. Why is divorce never the easier option? Why are people crazy and assume you're cheating? Yeah. It's like once you believe it, you cannot see the truth. Yeah, and it's weird because, like, if they left off, it sounds like, on a good note and having the letters and then suddenly to have it. So it's like makes you wonder what he was doing first off. I think he let his paranoia get him. Well, yeah, being up in Alaska... And I bet other guys are there and they're saying like, oh, I caught my old lady or I this, that or the other. Yeah. Just weird how people can change. Yeah, I wondered when I was reading all these articles for it, if the reason they don't talk about that at all with in regards to the case and like motive motive and things like that mm. is because that's not the uh, the narrative that the probably white, probably male writers at the newspaper were. Oh, definitely. Pushing, right? Oh, for them, so it's, yeah. this whore got what she had coming. Well, not, I mean, not not so much in this case. This is one where they were like actually pretty oh, respectful. Good. I don't know why, but you just mean as far as like, but we get why he did it. Like yeah, they didn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, they were just okay. respectful to her. They they there was no. Uh, almost, I can't remember a, uh, one one thing I read where they were really blaming her at all. Mm. You know, or trying to. It's interesting to me how many women will give men a second chance. When they mm. do cheat. Mm-hmm. But I feel like in situations where a man's accused a woman of cheating and she hasn't, like they cannot let it go. Yeah. Like they cannot fathom that their instinct 
is wrong or that they're misinterpreting the situation and it can spiral into these situations where someone's dead. If my years of watching Maury before I knew better taught me anything, it's that if the guy won't shut up about it, he's probably the one doing it. That's where I feel like that falls in with that idea of men not being able to move on. It's like, well, are you the one carrying guilt? Is this your guilt that's yelling at me or? And also, he was the one being super secretive and weird. Yeah. <laughs> just, I guess he was just projecting yeah. whatever was going on in his mind. Yeah. So weird. But once he made that decision, mm-hmm. nothing she would have ever been able to say would yeah. change his mind. Fortunately, 17-year-old Shirley and 13-year-old Doris had been away from the house at the time of their mother's death and the shattering of their home and lives. The girls told the detectives of the baleful warning their father had given them about the trunk. Early the next day, Detectives J.H. Blewett and F.D. Smith drove to the coast to scoop up Wes Bowden. He was arrested in Newport, where he'd been away on a fishing trip. He'd left for the coast the previous afternoon and claimed to know nothing of the bombing. Convenient timing. Hey, man, he's just got to go to his fishing boat hours away. <laughs> While must, I warn my children about a thing It must have been pretty tough to get to the coast in the 40s, oh. even though there were roads and stuff. I mean, even now, it's a, it's a serious drive. Yeah. Lord. You know, I was reading, though, about, like, Model Ts and stuff. They were hardy vehicles because there were so few roads. They were actually built to handle more of that off-road train. So you kind of look at it and think, oh, this old car, how could it do it? It's kind of built for that, but that would be a rough ride. Two hours in a jalopy like that? Oof. No, thank you. Bowden was held tentatively on charges of illegally possessing explosives while the case against him was cemented. He was held under a bail amount equivalent to $16,000 today. It was $1,000. Ooh. As Wes waited in jail, police started to reconstruct how the explosive had been set. The day after the divorce papers were filed, Wes went out and acquired six sticks of dynamite, and the caps needed to detonate them. Another of the mystery packages Fern spotted him with was batteries, which he had an electrician friend solder wires to. After being presented with such damning evidence, and exhausted from the many hours of questioning, Wes finally caved and admitted not to killing his wife, but to having the explosives. I just I just had him and I had him wired, I but I wasn't but she's intending to use it. He had certainly never intended for his wife to die. In fact, he had built the bomb specifically for Frank Hockenyos. Oh. The work husband of Ferns. Great defense. But hey guys. Now it sounds like he wasn't lying about that. <laughs> I didn't want to kill her, so but you know. Oh well, it's over. That's basically the vibe I'm getting. Freebie, from him. right? Okay. I I mean, do I get no credit for not killing Frank? Hello. To detectives, Bowden said, My wife filed suit for divorce. There was no motive after that. I didn't know what to do with the suitcase. I was afraid of it, and it just sat there. So his argument is basically he had it to use it against Frank and then just left it. And then once the divorce was happening, there was was nothing he could do. And so he wasn't intending to use it after that. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So she's cheating on me with Frank. I'm going to kill Frank, and then we'll just have our happy little marriage. No, I think he thought it was at a loss with her. Like, wow. Like, I washed my hands of it. 
but okay, okay, I'm following now. It's funny, wow. yeah, his reasoning that he, uh, his motive went away when the worst thing possible yeah, yeah. for him was happening. It's like, yeah. well, if she's cheating and I'm still married, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> but if we're divorced, oh well, water under the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> like, I what? like to have my options. I mean, he is not in his right mind. We obviously Clearly. know this. Yeah. So he had, in fact, built the bomb with the intent of murder. It just happened to kill the wrong person. And the only reason it was still active was that he had, in classic killer fashion, not really thought things through. He funneled his rage into acquiring the bomb's components, but hadn't considered how he would get it into Frank's possession. That had become such an issue, he ended up putting it inside the locker, down in the basement, under the roof he shared with his wife and two children. Bowden said, I had never built anything like that before, but it just seemed to materialize. Some days I'd feel like it, sending the bomb, and other days I would not. When I couldn't find a way to be sure of hurting no one else but this man, I put it in what I thought was a safe place. Your house? Your Were children? You tinkered with it? And I've never built something like this? Dude. Dude. I've had it. It was the intact wire from dynamite to detonator that kept Wes's story in doubt. He had assembled the thing. He should have known better than anyone that he only needed to disconnect one wire to make the device neutral. Mm. Yeah, then it would have been safe to have in your home. Mm. What is this guy? Well, he's a little fibber is what he is. <laughs> a little, little killer fibber. Killer fibber. Yet he chose not to do that, instead leaving it live in his home. The history of Wes's bizarre and oppressive behavior toward Fern didn't help his case either. The police didn't buy it. Quote, he had not intended to kill her, but to blow up a rival for her affections and acknowledged having constructed the infernal machine. And what did he think was going to happen if he had done it? Like she was going to come back to him like, oh, I love it when you fight for me. Yeah, or that he wouldn't go to prison. Yeah. He just only cared. It's like he's the original incel or something. Like, I just have to get rid of this guy. And then everything will be fine. They're, they're just not thinking of the repercussions mm -mm. of what's going to happen. The original infernal machine was constructed in 1835 to assassinate French King Louis-Philippe I. They built this, this gun that had 25 barrels. It was, uh, they, they stationed it on the third floor of a building, pointed it down, and as the king went by and his procession, they fired it. Ooh. And it was 25 barrels, and each barrel had, I think, eight pellets in it or bullets and like 13 to 14 metal slugs. Yikes. And so it just rained down on the crowd below, but uh, and 18 people were killed, 42 were injured, and none of them were the king or any of the monarchy. Oh my God. And well, even the guy, the guy who did it, his name was Giuseppe Fieschi, uh, when he set it off, one of the barrels misfired and exploded in his face. <gasps> Good. But he lived, oh. and they arrested him because he was lying there like, my face. <laughs> and uh, went to trial, convicted. Oh, also, wait, before I say that part, before trial, he was badly injured, and so they took him to whatever they had, like doctors back then in the 1800s, and they got him into good enough shape to go to trial, which was like seven months later. So he lasted for a very long time. But eventually he was convicted. He was guillotined mm. on the same day with his other co-conspirators. And there's a portrait painted of his uh, decapitated head. Ooh. And in it, you can see that he, well, he looks unwell besides being without a body. Mm. But also there's a, a, a noticeable hole in his, in his forehead. And you can see his brain. Whoa! So he he they kept him alive for seven well, months. They had to take the pressure off of the brain. Yeah, it's just whoa. Yeah, 
insane. I'm looking that up. Yeah, it's in, it's actually home. in the uh, it's in the sources. I have the image there. Awesome. I have a lot of there's a lot of really cool images in the in the blog for this one. So yeah, that was a cool that was a very cool thing to learn. It was so fun learning about Pandora's box and that infernal machine. It was very cool. Um, I don't usually learn I've, quite I as much. I feel like inspired to try to work Greek mythology into my <laughs> next few cases. I don't think I can, but I'm going to try. <laughs> well, I was lucky that they they called it a Pandora's box in the newspaper. Yeah. And the last part I was going to say about that story about the infernal machine was that it was probably uh, at least recorded one of the first one of the first ever mass shootings that ever occurred. Yeah. Oh, think. yeah. First multi yeah. Mm -hmm. bullet thing. And that sort of like uh, ambush attack. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for teaching us, Steph, yeah, Josh. You're welcome. History is, is fun and <laughs> learning is fun. Demental. I'm surprised I haven't heard that story, actually. I am how too. I am about like French history. Yeah, and... I really thought that too. During additional interviews, Wes told police he'd sent Fern $5,000 while he was working in Alaska during the war, which in his words, she had squandered. As requested, West sketched a diagram of the booby trap, which showed six sticks of dynamite rigged inside the trunk with tacks and wired to a detonator and a small battery. A friend of Wes's who worked as a contractor admitted selling him detonators and the dynamite, and he also said he watched Bowden put the dynamite in the footlocker when he first acquired it. What? And he didn't think anything strange? This friend had been under the impression Bowden would be using them for dynamite fishing off his boat at Newport. Just a classic way to fish. Safe. Mm-hmm. Environmentally friendly. I like that it really, like, cuts up the fish for you. <laughs> you can just cook it up and eat it there. A chum. Wow. wow. I feel like that guy might have just been, like, kind of lying to himself. Covering up. Yeah. I know that's a real thing, though. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it okay. is. But it just seemed like that that the the guy was, like, maybe coming up with that later. To, to tell himself that nothing was wrong. To tell himself wrong. in the yeah. cops. And I'm, I mean, I'm sure that, well... Just the way that it seemed that uh, that Bowden was like walking around with all these ingredients, like <laughs> yeah, chuckling and stuff, that the guy would think that. But anyways, but you know, in his defense, maybe he didn't see that side of him. Yeah, that's true. West said he built the bomb as the result of a lot of little things, like Fern refusing to quit her job, where the man West thought she was cheating with also worked. Frank and Fern were always talking and walking together. It couldn't be anything else. West told Fern, quote, he didn't want her walking down the railroad tracks with that man no more. And then he told police, I decided to get him. The trial began December 16, 1946. The prosecution accused Bowden of coaxing Fern's interest in the trunk by explicitly forbidding her from opening it, by walking down to work on it while she was doing laundry, by dramatically warning the girls to stay away, and the devious smiles as he carried the deadly makings into the home. Both Shirley and Doris testified that their dad told Fern that he was keeping his Fern journal in the trunk in the basement. They also said that they believed their father really loved their mother. I would think the journal would be another draw. Yeah. Be like, oh, that thing? Yeah, I keep it in that locker. That you may not open. That you cannot? Don't, don't do it. Yeah, I think he knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. Quote, Judge Walter L. Tews kept court in session day and night for a week in order to finish the trial before Christmas. Night? Yeah, they did it all day, all night. Oh, my God. To get God. through, yeah. You, Wait, like, you're through not, the like, night? Cognitive, your cognitive ability is not great after a whole day. They said late into the night. So past hours. So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, probably early morning and way late. Not a good idea. Wow. 
The jury reached the verdict in less than five hours' deliberation, taking the case late Saturday evening and retiring to bed a few hours later to resume consideration Sunday morning, December 22nd. They found him guilty of first-degree murder. I wonder when the laws changed about when you, how long jury duty could last and the hours in which oh, it needs yeah. to be completed. Gmail us. We need to look into that. Like, was there a lawsuit? People were too yeah, tired and reason. convicted someone on bad evidence. Like, I, I bet need the, to know. I bet the jury was was fairly stoked, though, about it because it was like, oh, we're going to get, we'll be done with this. Like the, the holidays. Yeah. yeah. Which does kind of, it does kind of seem like they're, um, Hmm. Sidelining justice or yeah. the, like, the holidays like, are on Wednesday. Oh, it'd be nice. You get out of work for jury duty and oh, then yeah. you're done by holiday. Extra oh. long break. And they're like, we did a great job. Ideal. Wes Bowden was sentenced to life at Oregon State Penitentiary on December 28, 1946. He died in 1954 at 56 years old, which feels young, even for a life sentence prisoner. Older Bowden's sibling Shirley married the year after her father's conviction to 22-year-old Oliver Williams. She was only 18 at the time. They divorced two years later. The complaint, like her mother's against her father, was for cruel and inhuman treatment. Younger Bowden daughter Doris married Clifford Gentry in 1950. They were divorced in 1956, and again the complaint was abuse. Neither sister ever remarried. Shirley died in 2018. Doris is still alive. Did you see that is pretty young for him dying? Did you ever see a cause? Well, I have a theory. Okay. When Bowden was initially being processed at the prison, there was an interview, uh, a newspaper interview with the warden at the time, George Alexander. And he said that Wes would likely be assigned to work at the prison's flax plant. Uh, they have a they had a flax farm there and they, oh. they processed it. There was a plant to process it. So based on a pair of British educational films documenting a flax <laughs> plant in the 40s that I watched on YouTube, uh, the work appears grueling and multifaceted. And there's no sight of protective gear on mm, or near anybody, yeah. not I even gloves. Well, I imagine lungs are the problem there. Yeah. Oh. And then pair that with the likelihood that he smoked because most Certainly. fishermen everyone do. did. It was the 40s. Yeah. Everyone did. So it probably and it could have been a heart attack from that. Wow. Like, honestly. oh, so just like inhaling the ground up stuff. Yeah. There's a condition called bisonosis or brown lung disease. <gasps> Basically, anyone living or uh, working in the textile industry back then or even today in other countries. Yeah. Yeah. Where they don't have the safety precautions. Yeah, they don't wear masks or anything. Yeah, it can, so basically the particulates get in and then oh. uh, can cause asthma-like symptoms and sort of honestly like kind of like the um, Fern's baby sister that oh, passed away, okay. all the mucus and that sort of like blocking the airways. Wow. And it's something Karma. that you can, um, that yeah. can be, uh, that can be cured by like taking yourself away from the textile industry, which if he was assigned there, he did not have a choice. Right. And he was there for just a few years. And I imagine that probably contributed to wow. his yeah. death. Or if it's that dangerous, he could have fallen in on something or machinery or whatever. And a second part of, of, of this, uh, the theory that I have, there's a couple of articles that mention that inside the, the trunk, the footlocker where the bomb was, the bomb itself was actually inside uh, a small fiber suitcase, like an old-fashioned like traveler oh, suitcase with all the so stamps inhaled on Inhaled that too. So I think, yeah, the, the, those fibers were most likely, uh, at least partially, that, that, that stuff was constructed out of flax. Oh. So that's what blew up 
uh, in Fern's face. And then over time, they may have crawled into his lungs and killed him. Wow. So a well, little I irony. I so. Yeah, I do too. Maybe po- a poetic slow justice. And, slow and painful death, maybe. I'm sure it wasn't great in prison back then because it isn't now. Can yeah. you only imagine it was worse? That was an interesting case. Thank you. I'm I can't believe I've never heard it. That's great. I just want to add a side note only because I watched, you know, you were talking to me about the case and uh showed me a YouTube video of a guy who does this, you know, kind of true crime stuff. Oh yeah, locally. he does like walking tours in Portland where he kind of talks about a true crime story as he walks to and in the neighborhood of where the things happened. Yeah. And it was interesting. One, I don't know, Emily, if you've ever encountered this. Google has blurred the house on Google Maps. So even if you have the address and you go onto Yamhill and you look it up. That's interesting. It's all blurred out, which is fascinating. I wonder if that is a county thing because I haven't seen that Yeah, I don't know. Because you can, you know, the address exists, uh, you know, newspapers and stuff. Yeah, you can find it, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to need it for the website. And also that gentleman, and I haven't listened to other shows about, I didn't know anything about this case. And Josh, you could back this up. There was never any actual proof of any kind of adultery. Oh, yeah. Zero proof. Just a suspicion. I'm yeah. telling you, I lived her life. Like, right. I, I know. Oh, I was thinking of you while he was telling it. I know she didn't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just a gut feeling. And so for for anyone who covers a case like this and is like, well, she was having an affair and he decided. No. So. But yeah, you really have i don't know if you want to share anything but i really was thinking about you of just... I, i'm just you know some other people listening probably have too you just in a situation where someone is accusing you of something yeah and you literally didn't do it and you have no way to prove you didn't do it because that's not how proof works right exactly you're just sitting there saying i can't prove it is fighting a losing battle yeah. with someone who is mentally unwell because that's all they think about day in and day out yeah it or not or fun. that's the only way they know how to destroy the relationship you know like oh something's wrong or whatever and they can't confront any real thing sure so i'll I'm make sure up some this people oh like yeah that. that like that must be the reason yeah because i can't see what else the reason could yeah. be. yeah because i'm a dense idiot <laughs> yeah yeah and it is so scary because you know and with your situation there were like scary moments but not endangering moments but it it's not that far now none of these things ever are far from being really dangerous Oh, yeah. It just takes, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. You Mm -hmm. don't know what's going to set a person off. A lot of the cases we cover are those, you know, that lower end of that gradient of evil that we talked about in our very first season. They are sometimes they would never do it again. Yeah. Something happened and they acted and you can't take it back. And then other times they're really scary people who always had it in them. You just never know. Yeah. Well, fascinating, Josh. Thank you for teaching us. About old Portland You're explosion welcome. murders. This is uh, what dynamite. That's right. That's exactly what I was going to say. You little lazy noodle. Which Zeus was not cool with, as that was a ju- juice job. <laughs> oh my. Jamba juice. Yum. Prometheus then gave people the peepees. Peepees. He gave them little peepees. The unknown contents of the jar. That's. (laughs) Mm. 
Are you okay? Did you pass out? I'm good. I'm good. Oh, I'm good. Cheese Louise <laughs> macaroni and cheese. I'm just going to unbutton my pants. It. It. Mm-hmm. Wes. <clears throat> Wes. 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 Oh, my God. What's happening? Wes. Wes. Passed away from pseudomembranous pharyngitis. How did I do that? And I know I was, that was just amazing. thinking that. I was literally just thinking. Sure, he gets that perfectly. <laughs> that was incredible. That's how it works. Because you're finally in your groove. That's right. Scroll it, scroll it. The stroke. Did you say it first? Yeah. No, we were singing together. And then but did you like, say the stroke? No. Oh, cool. No, I did. Was all you. <laughs> I had yogurt. What is happening right now? It's hot. Yeah, he's got the hot crazies. I am both hot and crazy. You shucking on them undies? (laughs) You. Just asking. At the time, she was a stenographer. Oh. 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 That was my. uh, my, That was my. You won't believe it. But it was my sweaty elbow on this chair. <laughs> I do believe that. Is that there, chair there from is. City Liquidators? Oh, See? Zoip? It's the first oh. time I've been able to recreate, recreate the, the sound. sound. <laughs> yes. Usually it's like, I just have to say, I no, I did it. fart. Not guilty. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what is that from? Chicago. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh-uh. Not, Not guilty. guilty. Oh, the the Russian woman. They had it coming. Wes was able to find work as a pipe fitter for the Oregon Shipbuilding Corporation. Shipbuilding. Shipbuilding. <laughs> it's time to bang, <laughs> gang style. <laughs> it was a gang style. And you bang. can watch from the closet <laughs> with your triscuits. <laughs> You need to bring a lot of water with you. I was going to say, is that the loudest and most unpleasant thing to be <laughs> consuming while watching people fornicate? What could be worse? You just wait till the slaps, you crunch every slap, and you're just like, <laughs> just dust everywhere. Yeah, I do feel like I've never eaten Triscuits without also coughing on a Triscuit. Oh, yeah, you have absolutely. to. Yeah. It's like a little uh, entryway mat. Yeah, you're chewing on. So good. They're so good, though. Mm. Helicopter flying Jesus. As that would imply. You know the cadence of her cough? It's always three. I guess. I did know that. Yeah, I, did. I, know I didn't know I knew it. the cadence of your cough. With that. With that. <laughs> it sounds like you're scared sometimes. I am. Your little voice. <laughs> your voice sometimes. <laughs> Simply the man lives in fear. (laughs) (laughs) That was an exaggeration. Simply an exaggeration. (laughs) (laughs) Still, but we never binge. We binge. We don't. We did. (sighs) All right. Okay. Said I'd watch it. (laughs) What more do you want from me? You are poetic. It's just flowing out of me. Should I quit my job? Yes. Oh, slam it up. That's my opinion. Mm -hmm. I don't understand poetry. Mm -mm. Never have. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Man. And I'd say if your poem doesn't rhyme, I ain't got the time. Mm -hmm. You got a boat boy? 
I think, think it was, was the 4th of, of July. <laughs> she told them about the ominous warning. Wes mm. Port City. I think that was my first kissy sound. Mm-hmm. On mic. First kiss ever. I've never made a kissy sound. Told you I was a late bloomer. <laughs> oh, I sure was. Still blooming. They knew Wes was... Ha Hello? Sorry. I'm <clears throat> Hello? Real, real sorry about that. Hello, are you laughing at me? I sniffed a booger. Mm. Mm. I sniffed a booger. Was it yours? And I liked yeah, it. Okay. Fine. Sniffing it back into place. It's not a time to blow it. <laughs> Bowden was held tentatively on charges of illegally pe possessing his spouses while the two seconds he might Supposedly. Supposedly. It goes into my tummy and my, and my mouth. Dynamite rigged inside the trunk with tax. Tax? Uh, plax plant. I'm sorry. Oh. At the prison's flax plant. Anyways. I can't believe I'm going to eat this whole bag of M&M's. I can. I do it every time I'm with a bag of M&M's. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production, written, hosted, and edited by Josh McCullough, Emily Rowney, and Alicia Holland. Feel free to email us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. For as little as a dollar a month, you can subscribe on Patreon to get exclusive access to ad-free and older episodes. For only $5, you can access Patreon-exclusive episodes and content. For more of us, be sure to follow on all the socials, listen to Josh and Alicia on their other show, Always Be My Sisters, and follow Emily on TikTok at M underscore Murder in the Rain. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>